Welcome to Nudge Talk Asia, behavioral science insights that improve business and lives. Here's your host, Paolo Mercado. Welcome back to another episode of Nudge Talk Asia from Ogilvy Consulting, bringing you behavioral insights that improve business and lives. I'm Paolo Mercado, Vice President of Behavioral Science at Ogilvy Consulting. The prolonged global pandemic has highlighted the importance of taking care of ourselves, not only physically, but mentally as well. WHO estimates that there are more than 576 million people worldwide suffering from depressive or anxiety disorders. The situation became even worse during the global pandemic. Our podcast discussion will focus on workplace mental health in Asia and the challenges faced by companies and employees in a new era where the boundaries between work life and home life are blurring. Are employers in Asia doing enough to recognize and help their employees who may be suffering from mental health issues? Joining us for this podcast is Dr. Andrew Mohanraj, the president of the Malaysian Mental Health Association and adjunct professor of psychiatry at Taylor's University Medical School, Malaysia. Dr. Andrew served the Ministry of Health of Malaysia for 12 years before taking up an international assignment after the Asia tsunami of 2004. As a consultant psychiatrist and mental health development advisor, he has done pioneering work in Southeast Asia for the establishment of sustainable psychosocial rehabilitation services in the Philippines and Timor-Leste. Dr. Andrew is actively involved in the mainstreaming of mental health issues in Malaysia as the president of the Malaysian Mental Health Association, and he has also served as a member of the board of directors of the World Federation for Mental Health. Dr. Andrew has also just concluded his consultancy with the World Health Organization Regional Office as a mental health and substance abuse consultant. Welcome, Dr. Andrew. Oh, thank you very much, Paolo, for this opportunity. I consider it uh, an honor to be here today. Yes. I'd like to just begin, Dr. Andrew, with just understanding the state of mental health awareness and treatment in Asia. As stated in your bio, you've really worked in the mental health space all over Southeast Asia. So could you tell us a little bit more about the scale of the problem as you've seen it? Well, I think generally speaking, you would find uh, mental health awareness is rather low in most Asian countries, really. And in some countries, you would find accessing appropriate treatment is also wanting. So these two aspects are not the same because in some countries you actually find appropriate facilities and treatment facilities available, but people simply do not want to access these services because of poor mental health awareness, as well as perhaps, you know, stigma associated with mental health and also some certain beliefs which are linked to their individual cultures that actually forms a barrier towards accessing mental health care. Now, I can tell you, you know, in in Singapore and Malaysia, where recently I came across a study, a sort of a quite a robust study, which showed that in both these countries, there's a treatment gap. It's a wide treatment gap as well as mental health is concerned, which demonstrated that only one out of five people in both these countries who had mental health issues, but did not access mental health care. 
Now, this is a classic example, at least as far as Singapore is concerned, where there are facilities to access mental health care, yet four out of five Singaporeans do not access mental health care. Mm. So, you know, it is very ironic that it is not always you would think that, you know, not accessing mental health care is only because of low resources. It may not necessarily be so. It could also be a reflection of a reluctance to stick, seek treatment due to stigma and poor understanding of what causes mental distress. And there's another study as well, very interesting study that I came across recently, which was done among university students in Malaysia. And a significant number of them, and this was more than 50%, and I forget the exact figure, I think it was something mm. like 60%, where university students demonstrated poor understanding of coping strategies and had negative attitudes towards mental health. And most interesting was that for me, as, as president of the Malaysian Mental Health Association, I found this a bit strange that 60% of students interviewed in that study could not differentiate between sadness or low mood and clinical depression. They just didn't recognize clinical depression as an entity. So clearly there's a lot of work you know, that needs to be done with regards to tackling this issue of mental health literacy. Right. I find both of those facts quite surprising, mm. Dr. Andrew. I mean, one, Singapore, one of the most advanced countries, I mean, a city-state, highly urbanized, with one of the highest levels of education in Southeast Asia. Mm. And still, four out of five people don't seek treatment and don't even recognize that they may have an issue. And for students in Malaysia, at least in those covered in that study, so I don't know if it's nationwide or KL-specific, but in either case, these are supposed to be very young people pursuing a good college education, still not able to recognize and differentiate, let's say, what would be within the norm in terms of feelings of sadness and uh, suffering a potential depressive disorder. So what is the reason for that lack of awareness, even amongst what we would assume to be highly educated people or people living in highly modern societies? I think, you know, when you talk about mental conditions, mental health conditions, if it is a psychotic condition like schizophrenia or substance-induced psychosis, it is very prominent. The symptoms are very clear. And there is a greater awareness of what causes this and such a person may need psychiatric help. But somehow depression and anxiety is not in this equation because people tend to look at someone with depression or anxiety as a sign of a weakness in character mm. or, you know, a personality mm. defect. You know, somebody who's just making a fuss about nothing. That's a prevalent thought about what constitutes depression. And clearly, you know, the, like when I told you about that study, it demonstrated to me that people still cannot think of depression as a clinical entity. They think it's just prolonged low mood and that's it and you can snap out of it. That's the kind of thing. And in addition to that also, all through Asia, you do see the kind of society is still very much trapped in that superstitious belief that it could be a work of some black magic or something to cause mm. sort of mental health issues or psychological issues in someone else. And most likely that the first line of treatment would then be to visit the traditional healer or the village shaman 
So it does not necessarily mean that they do not recognize that a person is having some sort of psychological distress. Perhaps they do, but they do not subscribe to the view that such a person may need, you know, evidence-based intervention. Probably it can be sorted out by, you know, the local traditional healer perhaps. So that's why in my practice, I find it very strange that, you know, the majority of my clients, at least when I was in government service, they would spend a lot of money visiting Indian, Chinese or Malay traditional healers. And naturally they would have spent lots of money on them and you know after all these repeated failed attempts then they come to the hospital to see us so we are never the first line in our very traditional settings but i must say that things are changing now for the better yes but is that tendency to go to traditional healers or to look at those avenues is that prevalent also in highly urbanized settings or is it primarily a rural problem yeah it is it is i would say it's primarily a rural problem so that's why when you when we spoke about singapore just now it's very paradoxical right and you pointed out it's a first world settings with you know services all over and you know it's, it's not a question of accessing the services but what happens when you access these services what would people say you know, there's the stigma that is associated with accessing services and the prejudice that might be as a consequence of you accessing such services. And when society is all geared towards, you know, performance, high performance, so anything that affects this is seen as a sort of a weakness in character as well. So I think this is a whole lot of issues here, but it's interesting that you brought this up because I find that it's not always that it is low resources that is the major barrier towards accessing care. Sometimes it is our own understanding of what mental illness is all about or what psychological distress is all about. Yes. I'd like to dwell on that a bit because definitely when you go to highly urbanized centers in Asia, there is a very competitive work culture, both driven by employer culture as well as the employee's own desire to succeed. And this definitely is a major factor in people looking at potentially anxiety or depression as you know something that they don't really recognize because it may be seen as a sign of weakness and therefore may impair them from being competitive at work. Now, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Like, If you were an employer who really cared about the mental health of your employees, you know, long-term mental health, how would you open up the conversation with them in terms of how do you differentiate, and let me be provocative with this one, <laughs> how do you differentiate taking care of your employees' mental health versus, let's say, just being soft on slackers? Mm. To be, you know, to be a bit provocative mm. on that. Mm. Well, you know, Paolo, that first of all, as an employer, if I were an employer, if I was a big, you know, had a big company, I was the head honcho of a huge organization, I would first of all understand that, you know, mental health and productivity is very closely linked. I mean, there are enough studies that the international literature on this is quite robust in demonstrating that, you know, the loss is something like one trillion US dollars worldwide 
as a result of mental health problems at the workplace. Mm. In Malaysia itself, we had one study in 2018 which demonstrated that we lost 14.4 billion ringgit in 2018 due to depression and anxiety in the workplace and that sort of wiped out 1% of our gdp that year alone for this so this is the language that companies and organizations will understand and, and there's no harm in that companies are there primarily to make money so first of all if they understood that there is a link between mental health issues and productivity then i if i were an employer i will certainly you know start wanting to do something about it uh, particularly if there are governments that are also encouraging in this and encouraging corporations and private sector to do something about mental health i'll take advantage of that but the first step i would do is to normalize the conversation on mental health in my organization and i think that is extremely important to do that to give the impression to staff that it's perfectly all right to have your downs just as it's perfectly all right to have your ups so hmm. that's what constitutes life and you know that would be the kind of conversation i would had and how do i make this more robust i'll probably have a kind of invite people to come and have a talk on mental health and resilience at hmm. the workplace and make it appear as though this is all part of life that's one thing that i'll do secondly i'll have to also make certain policies at the workplace a little bit more robust so that it is clear that people are not discriminated against when they open up and speak about their mental health issues and and paulo we know you and i know we are from the same region how difficult it is for somebody to actually pick up courage to open up because we simply don't have that culture of speaking up and speaking out about many issues not just mental health issues so we got to make sure that the environment is encouraging to that kind of situations where people open up and people are not punished or marked or discriminated against yeah. you know so for that you need policies you need something even legislative changes i give you an example in malaysia right we are governed by labor laws we are signatory to the united nations conventions on you know persons with disabilities and various international instruments and local legislations as well so one might argue and say you know there are laws to protect a person from being discriminated against after they reveal that they have a mental health issues at the workplace now what about a person who has declared that he or she had a mental health issue previously and then now she or he is due for a promotion but somehow the selection committee says ah you know what this candidate has some mental health issues previously and we are not absolutely certain if she or she can handle the new job because it's a promotion yeah. and it involves more responsibility now that's a kind of a system which somehow escapes the this whole policies and legislation and all that because you're not sacking the worker you're not in any way ostracizing the worker you have just decided rather unilaterally that that worker probably will not be able to put up with the pressures of the new job so these mm-hmm. are the kind of mm-hmm. subtle way in which people with mental health issues can be discriminated against so you know when you look at all that sometimes i start thinking how effective would our moves be our initiative to encourage workers to open up and talk about their personal issues when we are not absolutely sure 
if the system itself is robust enough to protect them. Mm-hmm. Yes. In fact, in some other discussions that I've had on the topic, that was a major theme that kept coming out, that even when employers have mental health programs, I think for the lunch and learn, getting people to talk about it, people are open to that. But when you actually have a counselor or a clinical psychologist or a therapist on site, there seems to be, at least in some of the interviews that I've had, some great hesitation accessing these services at work. Because if you are seen accessing this at work, you can get labeled. And if you can get labeled, and if management hears about it precisely, (laughs) it's not so much that they fear that they will be directly reprimanded or ostracized for that. But when promotion time comes, they're labeled as, oh, they can't hack it because they've seen the counselor. So how do we manage that? Because on the one hand, if you're an employer, you want to provide these services. But on the other hand, you cannot help. Sometimes, even if you have um, confidentiality and anonymity clauses there, office gossip and office talk can spread. And then managers may have these unconscious bias Absolutely. of people who access mental health services. So, so how, do we, how do we resolve that? I mean, you know, there are preventive measures, obviously, that any organizations can take. It's, you know, one of it is normalizing this talk on mental health, and, but also mm-hmm. to offer other forms of support, making minor adjustments to work schedule, to even considering giving a mental health day off mm-hmm. for someone, you know, no questions asked, you know, an employee is really good and normally would you know, would give 110% of himself or herself to the company, but, you know, he or she can have a bad day and just, you know, and say, you know what, I just need to relax today. And I don't need to go and see a psychiatrist or a psychologist to say here, you know, you have to endorse my medical leave. All I have to do is pick up the phone and tell my supervisor or my line manager that I just need a day off. And what's wrong with that? So that's the kind of new culture that's coming up Because if companies truly value their staff, then they might have to introduce these new concepts in the workplace. Of course, there's a lot of trust as well involved here. You can't Mm -hmm. just give a sort of a blanket thing, you know, approval for anyone to just call up and say that. But good employees will not do that. And also, the you know, when companies, it's a lot of work, really, but... Part of it is also to ensure that the employees identify themselves with the values of the company. And if they do, you know, identify themselves with the company, then I'm fairly certain that, you know, 90% of the employees will not take advantage of the generosity and the flexibility of the company. And we are seeing this more and more after the COVID you know, and where hybrid work kind of environment arrangement was introduced, initially working from home. And this has really changed the whole idea of the whole concept of what work means to people. And I have come across more and more cases of people saying, you know, they have had a hard look at their jobs and somehow they don't feel that the values that they stand for or, you know, what they hope to achieve in a workplace, in their career, somehow there is a disconnect there. And they have just quit, you know, and that's very surprising. But when you mentioned just now what else companies can do, I was also, I think I need to share with you something that some companies thought was the right thing to do. 
And this started prior to the COVID, of course. I think it became very popular in this part of the world about 10 years ago when big companies started subscribing to EAP, Employee Assistance Programs. And, you know, they found, at least our experience here in Malaysia, is that's a very poor uptake on this. Despite all that assurances of anonymity, people somehow didn't take up this service. And when I visited a few organizations in Australia, I found they had a similar experience. So I started, you know, asking questions and wondering why this was the case. So on one hand, the organizations were very gung-ho about anonymity and, you know, how to protect the interests of the clients. But somehow there was no, it was a sort of a culture of passing the buck. They felt that, okay, now we have an external agency which guarantees anonymity. So if you have a problem, you make that phone call and you sort out your issues. But the company itself hmm. didn't create that environment to normalize the conversation on mental health. So this is, again, you know, one experiment that may not be the answer uh, to this. But ultimately, I think personally for me, I look at it as that the environment, the workplace must be as transparent as possible. That's number one, transparency is important. Number two, you have to show support in some way. And when you do that, that's when the employee identifies himself with the organization. And then the road ahead may not be as difficult for everyone. Ultimately, the responsibility does belong to both the employer and employee. Wow. And again, another very interesting finding when you look at it from the Asian perspective, you know, employees, candidates are so eager to get jobs and please their bosses. And a lot of them would claim or, or to declare that they are capable of handling some tasks or know some skills. But, you know, after getting the jobs, they just find that a little bit of a challenge. And that can lead to stressful situations as well. Again, you know, demonstrating that the whole workplace dynamics can be a little bit different in Asia and, and in a Western setting. There's so much that you've said there, Dr. Andrew. I mean, what struck me was that it's not enough for an employer to simply provide employee assistance programs, you know, as a service, a mental health service, you outsource it, you have either a hotline or a little clinic in the office or maybe a, a help desk. It's not enough to do that. And that what employers actually need to do is to work on an organizational culture, a work culture that encourages mental health conversation, that recognizes both the strengths and the limits of individuals. And what you said also earlier struck me in terms of the alignment of what the company does and the values of the employee together, plus also very sharp managers who know that even if you have young, overeager employees who want to do more, that managers must be sensitive to the fact that people cannot do extensive amount of overloaded work for a long period of time without eventually breaking down. You know, it, it sounds almost like, you know, being an athletic coach and managing a team well for prolonged performance. Absolutely. You know, you cannot yeah. keep pushing a team at every competition. <laughs> you need to, to, to have people, you know, rest or have uh, key roles uh, that they play and, and, and have sufficient time for recovery. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, Paolo, the last point you mentioned, 
sometimes has got to do with communications, really, between the manager and the staff or the employee here. And that's what we saw after the pandemic, at the height of the pandemic, when people worked from home. We found that there was, you know, greater number of, and, and I'm looking at this from the perspective of the complaints that we received in the helplines. And, you know, people said there was no clear instructions as to, you know, how they're going to perform their work from home. And often they were burdened by work. They had to be answering emails 24-7 and expected to do more work because they were at home. Mm. So, again, that was that sort of a communication problem. And another very interesting observation is that one manager who, who consulted me said, you know, nowadays I have to be more skillful in reading emails mm. because I have to read between the lines and to see whether that was a very curt message and to see, to detect distress between the lines in an email. You know, so that's the kind of skills people actually <laughs> developed because of yes. this, this yes. lack of communication. <laughs> yes. At one point in my career, I had worked outside of Asia. I'd worked in Europe where the work culture is very, very different. And in fact, we had jokingly said that, wow, you have a luxurious work life there because people respect weekends, people respect work hours. You know, I mean, yes, you will have overtime every now and then, but it's always considered as exceptional rather than, than the norm. True. But in Asia, you have, let's say, blurred lines yeah. of hours leaking through what is agreed in the contract, especially now also with a lot of online work Evenings are no longer as sacred, you know, before when you're physically working in the office, the moment you get out, you're still accessible via mobile phone. But there's often that thing that, oh, but he left already, might be driving, might be commuting. Nowadays, there seems to be this blurred line that you can be accessible anytime. The question I have is based on your work across different Asian countries, are you seeing more or less that same pattern of fluidity between work? and home life? Or are there countries where you see that that situation is more extreme and that there are countries, let's say, which have a bit more, dare I say, discipline or at least sacredness of personal time? Well, I think generally speaking, in the Asian culture, there's a tendency to blur the lines. But you see now more and more organizations adapting a more you know stringent policy here in terms of respecting one's personal time i mean some organizations even in in, in malaysia are going to the extent of saying employees are not to send out emails on you know on weekends because that puts a sort of a burden on the recipient to answer those emails so they have a cutoff time for that mm. not to mention phone calls and things like that but of course this sometimes is not possible because of the different time zones and particularly an international organization is involved and also at the level of management at a certain high level then it is it's so fluid so it's not so applicable but generally speaking that's a kind of a culture in asia where i think we also learn to we want to please our bosses right i mean generally that's 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 <laughs> that's the asian culture so we don't mind walking the extra mile and, and we somehow didn't think that was out of the ordinary. But now, since work has become, you know, much more, I should say, tangible and being a very significant 
component of what causes this psychological distress, this has become I mean, in the forefront. Now, your question as to whether you find this in, in some countries, there is that sacredness in respecting individual time and space. I think, you know, there are certain, generally speaking, like if you look at Singapore, they are putting things in place. And there is also, there's a very strong, what should I say, awareness of the propriety of doing things according to international standards. So there is also a reputational cost to this as well. And those are kind of things that you see in corporate houses in Singapore. You can see that partially in Malaysia, but I would say that in other Southeast Asian countries, probably the lines continue to be blurred. Mm -hmm. Except, you know, in, in certain organizations of international standings, like, I mean, you have a huge organization, very well-known international brand. This company has offices in Bangkok, Singapore, Kuala Lumpur. Then they tend to follow a certain uh, template here, which is the same in all these places. There's a corporate culture, which is universal and cross-cutting. But in a traditional way of doing business or running a company, I would say there are certainly some countries which are, you know, in inverted commas behind uh, in this, this aspect of it. But the awareness is raising and that I continue to feel that, you know, this COVID somehow has caused a lot of problems, obviously, tremendous problems for all of us. Not a single person I know has not been affected by COVID, but... Nevertheless, I must say there was also a silver lining to it. Somehow this mm. whole realization of the importance of looking after one's mental health and the linkage between corporate culture and the importance of employee mental health and the realization of productivity being impacted as a result of mental health, all these issues have cropped up now. And that is really the silver mm -hmm. lining here, I see. So there is something you know, something good has come out of this as well. Dr. Andrew, you've worked in and advised governments and also institutions like WHO. I'd like to ask, at what point should government intervene in ensuring workplace mental health? Uh, you know, I mean, private sector seems to be doing a lot, but it seems to be also something that's up to them. It's like, a, you know, a, a private sector policy, and it's almost discretionary. But at what point should governments actually have something very clearly standards in place in terms of taking care of employee mental health? Thank you. Thank you, Paolo. I was, I was really hoping you'd ask that question. Okay. So <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm glad you asked that because, you know, there's only so much that the private sector can do. And there's also so much, there's only so much the government can do. But the advantage of being in government is the fact that you can play a major role in legislative changes, for example, ensuring that, mm -hmm. you know, companies adhere to certain practices and make it mandatory for companies to embrace certain policies that support uh, mental health in the workplace. And when I talk about mental health in the workplace, we often focus on employees and staff reporting to somebody else, but often we neglect the mental health of the managers and even at the level of C-suites sometimes. So it has to be something comprehensive here. But the crux of the matter here is really in our part of the world, we do not still have robust policies in the corporate environment to fully protect the employee, not just not supporting the employee, and I'll, I'll come to that in a while, but ensuring that an employee does not get penalized or discriminated 
after you know accessing mental health care or making it known mm. so you find this is the major problem really because let's say you know in a western environment for example we can't say that there is no tendency towards discriminating people with mental health. i mean there's a feeling there's stigma associated with that that's all over the world you know and there's no exception to this there is also that personal prejudice against somebody who is seen to be having mental health problems but the difference is in those kind of environment you find that the system protects the employee yes the system is so robust it protects the employee so this is where i think governments in our part of the world must ensure that the corporate sector really has all these mechanisms in place and if necessary make legislative changes to ensure this happens in addition to that now the government i'll give you the example in malaysia we do have a sort of a training fund under the ministry of human resources now all companies which has a sort of the number of employees beyond a certain number i forget you know maybe 20 or 30 or something like that they have to make a voluntary contribution towards this fund up to 3% of their revenue or rather not a contribution but they can claim up to 3% of that you know from this pool and this training can actually be used for mental health capacity building in the workplace mm. so that is claimable so that's where governments can come in and put this in place and you know at the end of the day companies would want to make money and that's fair that's what corporations and companies are there to do i mean they pay their taxes and they're perfectly all right in making money but when there is a mechanism like this to say that a certain percentage must go to csr or a certain percentage must go towards training that also incentivizes the companies to you know use these funds for mental health awareness in the workplace uh, training their managers to detect mental health problems in the workplace and more than that not just detecting but how does one support employees who are having a bad time and support them in a non-judgmental manner how do you teach managers to listen non-judgmentally to convey to their uh, subordinates that they are there to give them support so all that needs training as well and that's where i think governments must really come into the picture to ensure that companies do not forego their obligations towards looking after mental health needs of staff the other issue that i wanted to bring up also is that in many of our countries in our part of the world there isn't adequate insurance coverage hmm. for mental health treatment meaning in the non formal sector for example in malaysia you would be able to go to any government clinic you might have to wait for a long time of course but you would get your service but in the corporate sector companies give the facilities for the staff to go to a private doctor general practitioner and get treated for cough and cold and that would be reimbursed or you know paid directly to the clinic but for mental health services if you wanted to see a psychiatrist or a clinical psychologist now that is all out of pocket expenditure simply because insurance doesn't cover that fully rather so this is where the government and the financial agencies of the government the governing body the central bank or something like that the finance ministry 
can engage the insurance sector and say, here, you know, we've got to do something about this and let's work out a plan for coverage. So these are things that not only would provide some sort of financial support, but it will also give rise to a situation when an employee does not have any qualms about saying, you know what, I just went to see my psychiatrist or to see my clinical psychologist for a session, because that normalizes that conversation as well. Yeah, this has been a really insightful discussion, Dr. Andrew. So let me recap the two key interventions that were policy matters. One is protecting individuals who access or who avail of uh, mental health support. It's not only providing the support, but they should be protected against discrimination in the workplace if they do. And then the other one is on, in fact, legislation that provides mental health insurance coverage in that way so that when people are in need of help, then financial burden is not something that acts as a barrier for them to accessing help. Absolutely. Would you care to add anything else in in the last few minutes of our discussion? You know, we have focused on certain very commonly cited mental health issues in the workplace, depression, anxiety. Mm. But, you know, I have realized in feedback that I got from the corporate sector and some of the work that I have done in the region, one thing that is forgotten is burnout. Now, burnout is often confused with depression, although it might have virtually the same features of depression. But the unique thing about burnout is it is exclusive to the workplace. Mm. Unlike depression, which is more pervasive and, you know, you see that irrespective of whether a person is at work or not, you know, and it is not specifically related to work. But in burnout, you see that. And it's such a tragedy to know that many people actually suffer burnout. And the real cause of this is because of, you know, what's happening at the workplace. And that may be just confused to be having depression. Mm. And really, it is so easy for it to be reversed if both the employee and employee had a better understanding of this. Wow. Well, that's a whole podcast by itself, <laughs> you know, the psychology of burnout and whether or not also, you know, what part of it is mental health related and what part of it is really about organizational and cor- corporate Absolutely. culture. Absolutely. And how do you create uh, early warning signals mm-hmm. and how do you mitigate employee burnout? This has really been a fascinating conversation, Dr. Andrew. I really wish we had more time. And thank you for joining us tonight and sharing your views of mental health in the workplace and how employers can create a better work culture. Again, thank you very much, Dr. Andrew. All right. Thank you very much. It is a pleasure to be on your show, Paolo. Thanks a lot for this opportunity. Yes. Thank you so much. I want to say thank you again so much to Dr. Andrew for joining us today and sharing your views on mental health in the workplace. And to our listeners, if you've enjoyed listening to the show today, make sure to subscribe and be on the lookout for new episodes wherever you find your podcasts. And while you're at it, please rate the show and leave a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Paolo Mercado, and this has been Nudge Talk Asia from Ogilvy Consulting.